This is the Edify Podcast for the servant. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and begin from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. We are witnesses of these things which he both did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify, that is, he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the people, all the prophets witness that through his name, Whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Acts 10, 34 through 44. Yesterday we focused on the preaching of John. John was a man who preached for conversions. And, and our focus primarily uh, to show how his preaching um, provides an example of one important aspect of evangelistic preaching, seeking to awaken sinners to their lost condition. But we also touched about, um, maybe briefly, on the fact that this was not all that John did. John pointed sinners to Christ the Savior. And this leads us to another crucial emphasis that should mark our evangelistic preaching, our preaching for conversions. That's what we're thinking of, declaring and explaining to men the essential content of the gospel message. We're thinking about that, preaching the essential content of the gospel message. We, we could look further at how John the Immerser did this, uh, but of course John lived before the cross and the resurrection, though his message was essentially the same as the message uh, that we are to preach. It, it was only in accordance with maybe the flickering light um, of, of the early dawn of the new day. You and I now live under the full blazing sun, what's often considered the faith once delivered to all the saints. We, we all live under this now world where the redemption has been accomplished through Jesus' resurrection. And um, so we get, a, we get a fuller picture of what it means to preach the essential content of the gospel message. It is better to look at some of the examples that were given in the book of Acts, realistically, rather than just to stay with John. But, but John is a preface. John is, is important. John is crucial. Luke gives us you know several summaries throughout the whole book uh, of Acts, that is, of great evangelistic sermons that are preached by Peter, Paul, and and one approach that we could take is to survey each of those sermons and draw out the common points of emphasis that we see, and we may do that, but but not today. I want to I want to focus on instead uh, one of the evangelistic messages in the Book of Acts. I just want to focus on one that I think really hits in short compass on all the all the major points that you're going to find. Um, in each one of these sermons, uh, it's often said that there's about nine conversions of, of what must a person do um, in order to be saved. Baptism is included in all of those. Now, baptism itself isn't going to save anybody, First Peter 3, 20, 21, but it's the baptism of a good conscience or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is the answer for a good conscience. Uh, 
Now, there's slight differences in all, all of the sermons that are preached, depending on the nature of the audience. I mean, for example, there's differences in points of, of contact and approach when preaching to Jews, uh, to Gentile God-fearers, or as Paul did in Athens, to pagans. But still, every evangelistic message summarized for, for us in the book of Acts is is at some length, you know, uh, at the core message the same. So there are certain common denominators in every evangelistic message that Luke records for us. And, you know, this is no doubt one of Luke's purposes in providing these summaries of evangelistic sermons of the apostles. You know, he he's desired to uh, make clear what the apostolic gospel is that we are to believe and to preach. And we use that term apostolic because it went out by the mouth of the apostles. Um, and, and as I said, I just want to focus on just one of those examples, Peter's message uh, to the people that's gathered at, in the house of Cornelius. Um, if you've been a Christian for more than a brief time or you've read your Bible often, you're, you're familiar with this. You're familiar with this situation, with this chapter and how it begins. Uh, here we have one of the great turning points in early church history, the beginning of the gospel being taken to the Gentiles. And and Peter's given this this vision up on top of the roof. He's hungry. He goes to sleep. Does us no good to go to sleep hungry, does it? <laughs> but he travels to Caesarea. He goes to the house of Cornelius. He gets there. What does he find? A room full of Gentiles that are waiting for him and ready to hear God's word. Verse 24 of Acts 10, And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together, notice this, his relatives and close friends. What a statement. What a, what a man of God, what a man who cares for his spiritual household, for his friends, his neighbors. That, that, that should be said of all of us. That's just a little sidebar note, free for nothing, not charging $83, nothing like that. But it says that in verse 33, at the end there, that we are all present. Cornelius says to them, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Now, this raises a question. If you had a room full of lost people sitting before you desiring to hear the gospel and to know the way of salvation, what are you going to say to them? This is your opportunity. This is something that you've hopefully prayed for. They're, they're sitting still. They're waiting eagerly to hear whatever it is that you have to say. What are you going to say? And the question may occur to you, as it does to me sometimes when we're studying this passage, wouldn't it be tragic if there are folks attending our worship services and, and they've yet to learn the full, I guess, essential points of the passage or of the message of the gospel? I'm thankful here for my uh, visionary shepherds that I have here at Piedmont Road. Um, they're having, um, I guess... Um, I guess what we would call the steps of salvation. Uh, but realistically, what a person must do in order to be saved, they're going to have that painted on the walls. Um, that that everybody comes in and everybody leaves, and, and no matter what's preached, it, no matter um, the, the gathering, that it's that it's written on our walls, that it's on, it's, it's that Deuteronomy 6. You, you put them on your doorpost. Our, our elders, and they want to shepherd souls here, and education is important. The gospel is important. They want people to know what they must do in order to be saved. They're going to have that painted on our walls. I'm thankful for that. Very thankful for that. Our our flock on a regular basis is going to hear sermons on how to have happy marriages, child rearing, uh, practical how-to Christian living, uh, this doctrine, that doctrine, etc., etc., etc. All of them are essential. And and they 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 may if you're not careful. The church may hear little snippets here and there of the gospel truth, but maybe it's never really made plain to these folks who are sitting at your feet, um, 
who Jesus is and exactly what he's done for sinners. It's often said that if Jesus, is, if Jesus' name isn't um, off of your lips in the first five minutes of the sermon, then throw the sermon away. And I, I get that's an extreme, but the idea has to be there. That premise has to be there. Every sermon is about Jesus. We need to help people understand that they can know and have assurance of forgiveness and acceptance with God. Wouldn't it be tragic? Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be tragic? Peter has a captive audience. Audience. What does he tell them? What does he do? Um, and I don't say that we need to take Peter's message and simply repeat exactly what it is that he said in the way that he said it uh, any more than we do with John's preaching or anybody else. But here we have a summary of those fundamental points of emphasis that, that make up essential content of the gospel message. Peter begins with something of preface in verse 34, 35, prepares the way. Here's the message. This is the focus. We're going to focus on this. Verse 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace. What kind of what kind of peace? This could be translated, you know, preaching the good news of peace or preaching the gospel of peace. Uh, the word translated that's preaching here is a form of the Greek word euangelizo, um, to announce glad tidings. And, and we could break down Peter's gospel message in various ways, but to help us think our way through it, I want to... I want to hone it down to three, uh, three points or three headings, if you will. <clears throat> Number one, there is a person of the gospel, the person of the gospel. This sermon that Peter preaches has several points, but at the same time, it has only one point, Jesus Christ. You see, it's all about Jesus Christ. Little boy's taking a test, sitting down at school, and he writes on a sheet of paper, Jesus Christ and the answer. The teacher marks it wrong. She gives it back to little Timmy. He says, ma'am, Jesus is always the answer. <laughs> Kudos, fist bump, little Timmy. Way to go, pal. But but what message is the Holy Spirit um, is using or, or, or blesses the ears? Uh, or, or, or what message is the Holy Spirit um, using to, con- to convert these sinners? In a nutshell, it's, it's the message of Christ. It, this, this is the primary mission of the Holy Spirit. It's the, it's the peculiar ministry, business of the Holy Spirit uh, to magnify, to draw attention you know, to the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, do you remember what John said in John, uh, or what Jesus said in John sixteen fourteen? He w- he was speaking uh, of the coming of the Holy Spirit. He said he will glorify me. The Holy Spirit was sent among other things and above everything else to glorify the Son. For he shall not speak of himself; he shall glorify me. So Peter's message is a message that proclaims and exalts the glorious living person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us here is who Jesus is, and this is one of those things that we got to do in our preaching, fellas. You know. Um, Notice some of the ways that he does this in his sermon. Peter describes him as one, the one who's sent by God on a mission of peace between God and sinners. Verse 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. Peter declares that it is God who has taken the initiative to provide salvation for sinners. He's extended his hand. It's open. It's there. The same God against whom we have all sinned, the same God whose you know, wrath that we realistically deserve and, and, and we're exposed to, that same God has taken the initiative in his love and his mercy to provide a way that you and I can have peace between us and him. And that way is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God the Son, was sent into the world. He was born into this world uh, of a virgin, Mary, yes, but, but he didn't begin to exist when he was born. He was sent to do this. And, and don't forget that. He was sent so that means that he was somewhere before he was before he was here. He was sent from another world to make peace between God and sinners. And when I say world, you know what I mean. He was sent from the presence of God. 
John 3, 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There was a sending from God. It was an extension. Here, you've done this, but let me fix this. What a, what a statement of the person of the gospel, which is Jesus. Peter declares that this Jesus, this Christ, is the Lord of all. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, verse 36. When God undertook to make peace with with rebel sinners. He, he didn't send a mere man. He didn't send uh, an angel. Not, not even an archangel, Gabriel, was sufficient for the task. He sent this uppercase O, one, who is Lord of all, God the Son, co-equal to the Father. He was Lord of the universe from eternity in terms of his divine nature as God the Son. And he is now exalted as Lord of all in his human nature, joined to the divine. He is Lord of all. Peter says he is Lord of all creation. He's not only Lord of the Jews, but Lord of the Gentiles as well. It, you know, Indeed, he is Lord of all the angels and principalities and powers in heavenly places. He is Lord of lords, King of kings, the sovereign king of the universe. So Peter proclaims the person of the gospel, and he explains who Jesus is. I have to do the same. Number two, the historical facts of the gospel. And I use the word uh, facts here very deliberately. Peter preaches the Christ of history. His history is his story. The gospel is based on historical facts and you know events that are confirmed by witnesses and, and recorded in the self-authenticating, in, in, inscripturated word of God. There you go. There's you some $3 terms. There are those who call themselves Christian teachers who tell us that the facts of what we find recorded in the Gospels do not matter that much, that it's not important whether these things really happen, they say, but, but, but what matters is, the, quote, the teaching and the religious value of these stories and the personal experiences. These stories grew out of an, out of, in the early church and the experiences these stories evoke and produce in us. That's all that really matters. If there was ever a time in which we needed to emphasize, in my preaching and in yours, the great facts and events in history on which the gospel is based and, indeed, are themselves the gospel, it is the time in which you and I are living. Galatians 4.4 4 says, when the fullness of time. Okay, that fullness of time meant something to God and it must mean something to me. And in that fullness of time, there are a whole lot of things that took place that were absolutely crucial. I mean, just in brief history, what would have happened if, um, what would have happened if um, um, Xerxes would have lost? Or Xerxes wouldn't have got punched in the mouth by the Spartans in, in 430 B.C.? How would he have, how would he have treated, um, how would he have treated uh, Esther? Between chapter one and chapter two of Esther, that's when that those events took place, and you've got you've got a humbled king. Well, that physical softening in a providential way is what softened the heart of him banishing his queen should should have killed her according to law. To now he's going to listen to sweethearted Esther. So something humbled him along the way. Providence is a beautiful thing, and God works in the affairs of men. Things mattered. The way that God raised up kings and set down kings all mattered. Even still today, God works in the affairs of men for his great pleasure, for his for His goodwill, uh, for his glory. He's still doing that today. All of these things matter. They matter crucially. We've got to never forget, we, we must never forget, that preaching the gospel is not a matter of engaging in philosophical speculations and theories. It's not a matter of advocating for a, a particular code of ethics or so-called traditions. It's not even a matter of telling people about some wonderful experience that you and others have had. Through, and, and there's a place for that. 
There's a place for emotions, and there's a place for connectivity. There's a place for for um, communication to help and relatability and all those things. But but it involves first and foremost Jesus in preaching. First and foremost, the declaration of certain facts and events in history. Take away the historical facts and the events, and you no longer have the gospel. It's all good news. The gospel begins in Genesis chapter 1. You may speak about your Christian experience to people, and that's fine, and it has a place. It is good to do that and needful, encouraging one another every day while it is called today, not just the three hours a week of worship service. There's a whole lot of, and I probably should do a podcast about this, an episode. There's a whole lot of things that we should do, quote, one another, that we should do for one another. There's several things that we should and should not do that we cannot do in the seat of worship. And, I, and I'm, I'm afraid that we fail to do that, and so we lose connection. The gospel's preached, but we have no connection with the people. So, sidebar, come on back. Thinking and talking about Jesus and, and thinking and talking about how he, he has impacted your life has a place and a time, and it's good to do that. But when you do it, it it's it, the, the postmodern mind is going to say, great, that's wonderful. If that's the sort of thing that makes you happy, more power to you. You know, if it works for you, good. Personally, I'm not interested. I don't need it. But whatever works for you, you go for it. See, you're using God as a means to the end and not meaning not using your means to the end of God, that is. We must also realize that, that cults give this kind of experiences. Dr. Phil, Oprah Winfrey, various various cults speak about getting happiness and peace and joy in your life. They say, follow our advice. You'll feel like a new person. And realistically, psychology and and, and the cults offer experiences. They do that. They do. And they and they can sometimes give experiences. But the gospel we are called to proclaim is not merely about having a wonderful experience. It's about historical facts and events. We preach facts, historical events concerning this person who is Lord of all, who was sent by God to make peace between God and sinners. And we preach about that and what he has done in time and space and accomplish, uh, and what he's done to accomplish salvation. Without this person, without those historical events, you don't have the gospel. and You cannot be saved from sin and from eternal hell. Peter, therefore, sets forth the historical facts of the gospel. He spoke of our Lord's earthly life, his ministry, this one who is Lord of all. He's humbled himself. He became a man. He came in time and in space. He lived in the in the sin-cursed world. Notice what Peter says in verse 37, that word, that good news of peace that is. He says, that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power. He speaks here of the beginning of the Lord's earthly ministry when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. His human nature was anointed by the Spirit, equipping him for his work as the God-man Messiah. And Peter continues, 38 and 39, who, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all these things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Peter speaks about Jesus' earthly life, his ministry, how God was with him, attesting to, the, to, to and confirming his identity as Jesus demonstrated his power over Satan, rescuing people who were in bondage to evil, uh, tormented by, by demoniac oppression. This is part of what is involved in preaching the gospel, telling about the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. Peter also declares of his curse bearing death on the cross. Verse 39, whom they killed hanging by, or they, they killed by hanging on a tree. And so this is the very heart of the gospel, the Lord of glory, the lovely, sinless 
Son of God. He went about doing good, right? Nothing but good, but was crucified on the cross. And again, Luke is only giving us a, a summary of Peter's message. In our preaching, we must feel in uh, from the rest of Scripture, all this, all of what this death means. However, the meaning of his death is already alluded to right here in what Luke gives us. Notice the language, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. By hanging on a tree. That's shorthand reference. Uh, Deuteronomy twenty-one twenty-three. This text is referenced or, or maybe alluded to several times in the New Testament, and it points to the curse-bearing nature of our Lord's death. And it's there we read, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You find it in Galatians 3.13, Acts 5.30, 1 Peter 2.24. The apostolic message of the cross may be viewed from different angles. The achievements of the cross are many. It, um, it shows us divine wrath. It reconciles us to God. It, 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 it's a propitiation for that. It, it redeems us from sin. It, it defeats Satan. It frees us from his power. It accomplishes all these things and more for those who are who are putting their faith in Christ and His work and His resurrection. But how exactly it how exactly does it do this? What is the central focus and essential, or or, or maybe essence is the word of the, of the message of the cross? What exactly was happening to Jesus as He suffered when He died? The answer given in the New Testament is that when Jesus died on the cross, he was offering himself up as a uh, substitutionary, uh, curse-bearing sacrifice for sin. He he was bearing the curse and the wrath of God that Jake Sutton deserves for Jake Sutton's sin, and he is the sinner's substitute for me. See, this is the heart of the cross, the heart of the gospel. Though God is a God of love and mercy, he is also holy and just, and we as sinners, because we have offended his holiness and we have... uh, forebode his love we are in need of holy and just wrath and but in his grace and his love god chooses to forgive me and you and it must be in a way that is righteous in a way that upholds justice how does god do that how does god remain just and holy and yet freely forgive and and justify sinners here is the answer that we must tell people and make, make make very clear to them there is only one way God put all the sins and all the guilt of those who will be saved to the account of his perfectly pure and sinless Son and Jesus. Jesus voluntarily received the punishment for those in the sinner's place. He died for all the world, but not all the world is going to come to him. Indeed, God himself was in Christ reconciling sinners to himself. And just think of it. God, in the person of the Son incarnate, bore the curse we deserve so that those who are trusting in this Christ and baptized in this Christ, living in this Christ, are freed from from that curse and will never have to bear it. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ, t'was full of thee, but thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. Ann Ross Cousins wrote that. Christ was, Christ what burdens bowed thy head. Beautiful statement, beautiful poem, beautiful lyrics. Peter proclaimed Christ's resurrection from the dead, and God raised him up the third day, verse 40, having borne the sinner's curse. 
on the cross. Christ could not be held by the grave. If he had remained there, we could have no no assurance that our sins were effectively effectively dealt with on the cross, and we could have no hope after death. 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen: If Christ has not risen, our faith is empty. But praise God, praise God, fellas, and your and your preaching needs to be praising God. There needs to be some exaltation in your in your in your preaching. Up from the grave, he arose, right? With a mighty triumph o'er his foes, God raised him from the dead, raised him up on the third day. In this way, God is declaring and demonstrating that his son's atonement was accepted and sufficient. The transaction was processed and approved. Moreover, by his resurrection, Jesus was vindicated in all his claims. Romans 1.4, declared to be the son of God with power. How so? By the resurrection from the dead. Peter would go on to explain that Jesus' resurrection was physically verified by many people, many witnesses. And he says, Him God raised up on the third day, showed him openly, not to all the people, but to the witnesses chosen before by God. Acts 10, 41, he says there. That's going to include Peter and the apostles and over 500 brethren, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. And Peter makes it very clear that Jesus was not a phantom. It was a literal bodily resurrection. Um... Though, though his body was wonderfully transfigured and glorified, Peter says in the second half of verse 41 that they ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. They saw him, they spoke with him, they touched him, they ate with him, they drank with him. We see this emphasis on the historical Jesus. It's there. Here we have a person, and we have the person of the gospel. We have the historical facts of the gospel. Christ's earthly life and ministry, his vicarious, curse-bearing death and his victorious resurrection. This is preaching the gospel, telling the story of Jesus, who he is and, and what he has done. The old hymn you know, says it well, tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Tell how the angels in chorus sang as they welcomed his birth. Glory to God in the highest, peace and good tidings to earth. Fasting alone in the desert. Tell of the days that are past, how for our sins he was tempted, yet was triumphant at last. Tell of the years of his labor, tell of the sorrow he bore. He was despised and afflicted, homeless, rejected, and poor. Tell of the cross where they nailed him, writhing in anguish and pain. Tell of the grave where they lay him, tell how he liveth again. There's a person, there's a past, and there's also an urgency, number three. In verse 42, it says, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Peter is speaking of the last day when Christ will return to judge the world in righteousness. The living, those who are then alive on earth, will stand before him. Those who are, are dead are going to be who who have already gone are going to be raised and stand before Christ before judgment. What an awesome, solemn day that's going to be. Peter is making it very clear. We must also do it in our evangelistic preaching that the gospel is not just an interesting story for people to think about and to consider. Eternal issues are at stake. The eternal destinies of men hang in the balance. Judgment is coming, and God has ordained Jesus Christ to be the judge. He will be. He will be that. This is this Jesus Christ, whom I declare to you, the Lord of all, the one who died for sinners and rose again. He will decide where you spend eternity. And what he decides then at that moment depends on what you decide now and how you respond to this gospel that I'm preaching to you. We're going to shift the gears. We're going to pick this up on next Tuesday. 
pleading with sinners, pleading with them. There's a third critical emphasis that has to be, I guess, marked in our preaching for conversions, and that's pleading with sinners. Thank you for taking your time. Thank you for listening three times this week. It's been a great study for me as we consider what does it mean to preach to sinners, to awaken people to this mutiny that's that's said of them, to awaken them to the fruit that they must walk in, and, and, and how to do that. You know, looking at Acts 10, looking at the preaching of, of Peter and, and him preaching the gospel to them, and that probably was just a summary, realistically, of what all was done, uh, what all was said in that moment. These things were said, but, but you know, there, there probably was more. He spoke more about what, what had took place, and those people listened. There's going to be people listening to you this coming Sunday. Here this is Thursday. you got Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday's here. Sunday comes every week. That's the burden of preaching, but it's also the blessing of preaching, fellas you got people coming who are looking for to be fed by the Word of God. They're looking to be restored. They're looking to be renewed. They're looking for restoration on all levels. They're tired. They're tired of this world, and they need their Lord. They need their Savior Jesus. They need His Spirit, and they need you. They need you to give them that when they come and sit at your feet. May God bless you this week in your preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ.